the texts that we're looking at here today, if, you, if you've ever encountered a situation where you're like, you know, there's no, there's no commandment in the Bible that speaks to this. You know, it says, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie. You know, it's, we've got all these like kind of instructions from the Father. But sometimes you encounter those situations in life in which it's not like black and white. It's kind of like a gray thing and, and it, there, you're not really sure what the Lord would have you to do in that situation. Well, the text that we're looking at here this morning actually provides us with a little bit of a principle, a guideline, so to speak in terms of what our responsibility before the Father is. And it's a bit of an obscure passage. You won't find this in any of the other Gospels. It's just here in Matthew, and, and uh, it's, it's really interesting. It's really profound. So if you would, look with me. Matthew chapter 17, verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Previously, when Christ had said this to them, they said, no, it's not going to happen. You don't know what you're talking about. Here it says they were greatly distressed. So their perspectives begin to shift. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? Do they take it from their sons, or do they take it from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this encounter here with, with Peter and the tax collectors and the temple. We thank you, Lord, for the instructions that you gave to Peter. And we thank you, God, for what you have said here in this passage. We pray, Lord, that you will drive it home into our hearts what it means to be considerate of others and what true consideration looks like. We pray, Father, you would do these things. And it's in the name of the Son that we pray. Amen. A number of years ago when I was at university, a friend of mine who was in the same Sunday school class as I, his name was Cody, he worked at a horticultural landscaping company. And some of you may recall, I also worked at a horticultural landscaping company. It's a fancy way of saying we mowed the lawns and clipped the hedges. Um, and so we were kind of like rivals, but we went to the same Sunday school. So that's how you know God's grace is good, when he can bring those fiercely competitive lawnmowers together and, and we can all worship the Father together. Uh, we were in the same Sunday school. He worked for a, a boss that was much stricter, much more stern than my employer. This was a man who was a go-getter. He's trying to get his company up off the ground running, and he demanded long hours and just relentless effort from his, from his employees, and, and he maintained a certain stamina, a certain pace in terms of his work that was, that was like superhuman. Just go, 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 mow grass, mow grass, mow grass, mow grass. And, and so he, he just kind of expected that from his employers. 
And he was also a bit eccentric. You know, they had a company uniform that they had to wear. Uh, they had like a polo shirt with the logo and stuff on it. And my friend, Cody, he was a manager. He was sort of in a managerial position where he supervised different crews and he directed them in terms of when they would go out to clientele's, the customer's house, and, and do this yard maintenance. And uh, the thing was that he was, as a manager, he had keys to the shop. And so his boss was eccentric in the sense that in order for my friend Cody to do his job, he needed keys. You know, he, he was a supervisor. He managed people. He needed keys to the office, the shop. And he had to wear this uniform, and his boss made him pay for those things. His boss made all of the employees pay for those types of things, uh, which I guess is understandable to a certain extent, but not for the keys. The keys always struck me as really, really peculiar. There was another lady that worked as a secretary, and she, she wasn't a bad employee, but she, she just couldn't maintain the pace that Cody's boss wanted her to maintain. And, and so she was a good employee, honest, straightforward. She just wasn't as on top of it and as, as fast with things as what Cody's boss wanted. So he, in a fit of anger one afternoon, let her go and dismissed her, still owing her like two weeks of, of pay on her paycheck. Well, my friend Cody, he's bringing all the guys back to the shop. They all ride around in the company truck, and then they come back, and they get in their cars, and they go home, and he kind of checks things in, and then he goes home as the supervisor. Well, he pulls up to the shop, and his boss is still there. It's late at night. It's like 6 o'clock. Everybody's normally gone at this point. His boss is still there, and he's thinking, oh, no, this is bad. You know, there's ne this never happens, right? And he goes inside, and his boss says to him, I fired the secretary today, and uh, I'm very disappointed with her, her work performance, and, and uh, you know, I, I can't believe that she just can't keep up with us, and so forth and so on. He had his reasons. He says she has the company T-shirts, and the company keys, and I'm worried that she will, in anger and revenge, come up here in the middle of the night tonight and let herself in the office and, and trash the place and, and whatever. So what I want you to do, Cody, and this is a Christian, my friend, and my brother in the Lord, we went to Sunday school together, I want you to go to her house here at the end of the day, even though you've just finished your working day, you're tired, you want to go home, you're a poor, starving college student, you have tests in the morning, none of that matters. I want you to go to her house, knowing that I still owe her money, and I don't have a paycheck for her right now, knowing that she paid for her own keys out of her own pocket, and knowing that she paid for her own uniforms out of her own pocket, I want you to go get those things back. And so he said, okay, and he's driving over there, and he's thinking to himself, I mean, just ask yourself this question. How is this really going to go down? She paid for those things. She owns them. The company owes her money, and I don't have any money to give her, and I'm going to be asking her after she's just gotten fired today to give me that stuff back. Have any of you, now, now there's no Bible verse that really speaks to that. Some of you are thinking, yes, there is, you know, live and let live. You know, that's, that's what the Bible verse is. That's not in the Bible, guys. That's not a verse in the Bible. You're thinking, there surely is a verse in the Bible that says that this isn't my responsibility, right? This is not my problem, right? And you could argue from the job description, 
this isn't in my job description either. I'm not supposed to, I'm not human resources. I'm not the guy that goes and deals with these kinds of, how is any of this my problem? Some of you guys have probably been there where maybe your employer or, or maybe in some other similar type of circumstance, you have found yourself in a difficult position in which you're thinking, I'm not really sure how to respond or like what the right thing to do here is. I, I kind of can sympathize with that person over there. You know, I, I kind of see my employer's position on this whole thing. I'm not really sure what the right response is. And you have felt the tension of wanting to kind of get along with everyone and not necessarily offend or upset any particular person. And you may have been in that situation where you're not sure what the right thing to do is you can completely relate with Peter in this particular passage. If that's ever been you, then you are Peter. And I've got good news. The Lord does actually speak to these types of situations. Look with me. It begins in verse 22. Remember, they've just healed this poor kid that is afflicted with a a demon and is suffering from epileptic-type seizures They're rolling on from that event, and it begins in verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. This isn't the first time. This is the second time that he has said that. And the first time he said it to him, he was explicitly clear. He said, the scribes, the chief priests in the temple, the temple compound, the religious authorities, they're the ones that are going to have me executed. The first time Jesus says that to him, they don't believe him. Peter pulls him aside. No, that's not how it's going to go down. That's not what the Bible says is supposed to happen. You're supposed to be the king, the great Messiah. Peter and the others don't buy it. This time around, Jesus says, I'm going there. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to be delivered up to be crucified. And on the third day, I'm going to be raised from the dead. Now, they probably haven't in their thinking processed all the way to the part where he says, I'm going to come back from the dead. But they are definitely at this point in time processing the fact that he is going to die, that they're going to kill him. And it makes this statement, they were greatly distressed in verse 23. So they're upset. They don't like this news. It's starting to impact them. It impacts them emotionally. It goes on from there. They come to Capernaum, which is Peter's hometown. You'll recall Peter, James, and John. These guys were in business together. They were fishermen. This is their hometown. This is where Peter's mother-in-law lives. This is where he met the girl of his dreams, married, set up shop. This is his back life before he becomes a disciple. So he's rolling through town. He's going down the city streets one day, and he is approached. He is approached by tax collectors. Now, there's two different types of tax collectors. We are aware of the publicans. These are guys that basically set up shop and went to work for Rome. They collected tax from all of the Jewish citizens on behalf of the government at Rome. Remember, Israel, even though it's a nation, they don't govern themselves. They don't have autonomy. They are subjugated to the Roman authorities. And so you have these Jewish people who sort of sign on with the Roman government, and they collect collect taxes, and they are universally hated because they are seen as sort of traitors, you know, turncoats, guys that have gone over to the dark side and now are extorting us for money to give it to the Roman government. That's not who we're looking at at this particular passage. These are different type of tax collectors, and you notice that because it references a very specific type of tax. It says the two drachma tax, okay? So the way that this works is way back in the book of uh, Exodus, we don't need to turn there, you just need to know 
for your own personal notes, in Exodus chapter 30, uh, God had instituted a specific tax that was to be applied across all of the nation of Israel for the upkeep, at that point in time, of the tabernacle. Eventually, the tabernacle becomes the temple in Jerusalem, and from the time that there was a tabernacle up until Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, the sacking of Jerusalem, all of Israel paid a tax for the maintenance and the upkeep of the temple. It was a universally applied principle. Everybody has to do this. It's a social obligation. Everybody has to give. We want to go somewhere. We want to worship the Lord. We understand that that facility needs to be maintained, needs to be paid for. And so it was a very small tax. It wasn't an exorbitant tax. It was about the equivalent of two days work. So you think you work 365 days a year, most of us get weekends off and whatnot, but we're talking about a very small amount of money, two days worth of, of effort. That's what they're required to pay. Now there's some debate over this because the tax, when Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem, when he destroyed Israel and dragged them all off into captivity, this tax fell out of use because there was no temple, there was no nation of Israel, and so they weren't paying this tax. When Herod comes along, he builds the temple. He reinstates the temple, and he reinstates the tax. Now, how many of you like to pay taxes? None of us. How many of you you know, we have a political election coming up down the road and different people are proposing, different parties are proposing different solutions for, you know, what's wrong with our country. When taxes go up, we might see the need for it. We might recognize that we have to pay those taxes, but all of us, if we're willing to be really honest with ourselves, we hate to see more and more of that paycheck being taken away from us, right? We work hard for our money. When Herod rebuilds the temple, it's beautiful, it looks awesome, it is wonderful, it's one of the most amazing, most powerful, most glorious looking things in all of Jerusalem, but now we got to pay for it. And he institutes, he reinstates this old tax. Most everybody paid it without objection, because they like the temple, they want to go and they want to worship. But just like you and me, there's a group of people that don't like paying taxes. It's just, it's just kind of grates on them. And so these guys have to go out every, every year and they have to say, hey, it's the time of year where you know, we collect taxes for the temple. And for the most part, the Jews are happy to pay it, for the most part. But you get these few odd ducks here and there who, who don't pay it. And it's kind of awkward because it's not actually a law. And this is the catch. There are rules which are codified as law, and then there are just rules that you just obey just because. You go to your grandmother's house, she welcomes you in, you and all the kids, and let's all sit down in the living room for a nice cup of tea. But then there's grandmother's chair. Can you sit anywhere? If you were to ask grandmother, can we sit anywhere? You can sit anywhere. That would be her response. But you know, behind the sweet smile and the nice, sure, come on in, dearie. There's an unwritten rule. You don't sit in grandma's chair. That's her chair. That's where she sits. So there are laws, and then there are just, you know, those rules that we have to keep. This would be closer to that. 
not going to go to jail. Roman guards aren't going to come and grab you and throw you in prison. But if you don't pay, all your neighbors are going to hate you because they paid and you didn't. Jesus already has a reputation as an anti-establishment, anti-temple guy. You'll recall from the Gospel of John, in the very first encounter that Jesus has, in the very first year of his ministry, he's in Jerusalem for Passover, and he drives all the money changers out of the temple, and the scribes and the Pharisees and the temple establishment guys come to him, and they say, what sign will you show us that you have the authority to do these things? And the Lord's response to them was, tear down this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. Which is kind of an interesting expression, a kind of an interesting remark. His disciples eventually understood what he was talking about. He was talking about the temple, which is his body, which he would offer up as a sacrifice to atone for all of our sins. They eventually got it. But for the Pharisees, for the scribes, the guys who collect the temple tax, the guys who are buying and trading, selling and exchanging in the temple, when you say, I'm gonna, you can tear this thing down, I'm going to tear this thing down and rebuild it in three days, they hear that as a threat against their whole establishment. They hear that more as a terrorist, sort of anarchist kind of statement, that you're going to tear down the temple, right? So, when Jesus is encountering these guys in Capernaum, they come to not Jesus, remember? They don't go to Jesus and be like, you pay the temple tax. It's the time of the year in which you pay the temple tax. Please pay it. They don't go to Jesus. They go to Peter. Peter is seen as the leader of the, the disciples that are following Jesus, but ultimately the real authority figure in this happy band would be the Lord, but the Lord has already gone on record saying, tear the temple down, I can rebuild it in three days, it's not a big deal. Well, so he kind of strikes this as anti-sort of temple. They come to Peter. Notice the form of the question. Does your teacher not pay the tax? Now, you're Peter. You love the Lord. You recognize him as the God of the universe. You recognize that whatever takes place in the temple is for the purpose of worshiping Jesus. These guys who do not recognize Jesus as the Son of God are still following their social obligations, prescribed custom, even recorded and codified for us in Exodus chapter 30. Two drachma tax, it's not excessive. Does Jesus pay that tax? Does Jesus pay that right? No, no, he doesn't, does he? The way they ask the question, they are assuming a negative answer. Now, there are rules, and then there are laws. There are laws you have to keep or else you're going to jail, and then there are just rules that you know you ought to keep. Peter's response to them is, yes. Understand the question. Your teacher doesn't pay the tax, does he? Or does he? Yes. <laughs> and I'm done here. And he's going home. The way that the structure of the sentence is in the original Greek, they pose it both ways. Does he or doesn't he? What does he do? Does he do this? 
That's the nature of the Greek behind the verse. And Peter, the answer is very straightforward. Yes. Just like sometimes you guys ask me, you know, like I've, I've done this many times myself where you ask me two different questions, you know, in the positive or in the negative, and my response is just yes to all of the above, you know. And you don't really have a clear-cut answer. That's Peter's response here. Should we pay the tax? Yeah, we probably should, or else all these guys are going to hate us. Are we going to go to jail if we pay this tax? No. No, we won't. It's not Roman law. What is the tax for? The maintenance of a temple. That's purpose is to worship that guy over there. Does that guy have to pay the tax? What's a man to do? He says yes, and he walks away. He goes back to the Lord. You understand his position here. Is Peter required on behalf of his Lord and Savior and God to make his Lord, Savior, and God pay a tax to keep up a temple which purpose is to worship him? You talk about an awkward situation. What is the right answer here? It's in the Bible. We do this. It's not going to send me to jail, but this is all for the Lord. Does he have to keep... You see his problem? So he goes back to the Lord, and look at what the Lord says. He goes through the door, and you know this is kind of weighing on him, like, I don't know what the right answer here is. I don't know what to say. He never gets to a place where he can pull Jesus aside and say, hey, i got to ask you a little this is a hypothetical scenario. He doesn't ever do that. He walks through the door, and the Lord anticipates he already knows what has happened, and he just cuts straight to the chase. What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? Do they take it from their sons or do they take it from others? Now here's the deal. A king's responsibility is to maintain the kingdom. His job is to uphold the laws. His job is to keep uh, foreign invading armies out. His job is to keep his citizens safe. His job is to provide, in some extent, for the well-being of his citizens. In order for him to do that job, all of the citizens of the kingdom, they pay tax so that he can do his job. Would he collect this tax from his own children? No, because they are considered princes and princesses, okay? The point of royalty, the point of the nobility is that your sons or daughters will one day also participate in the family business. Their job is also to help you administer the affairs of the kingdom. Their job is also to help with you one day in in ruling over the army, leading the army to keep the citizens safe. This is their job. And one day as a king, when you die, the family business, so to speak, of ruling the kingdom will pass the custom was to the firstborn son that was the custom that would be your heir so would he draw taxes from his sons no there's no no record of that they don't do that that's not how it works so jesus question is very straightforward he says when a king collects taxes does he collect those taxes from the citizens of his country or does he take those taxes from his own sons and daughters And Peter's answer is very straightforward. As he sits there and he thinks about it, he's like, well, nobody takes taxes from their kids. So he says to them, they take taxes from others. Notice Jesus' response. Then the sons are free. Meaning, this is universally understood. When kings of the earth need money, 
to fund their service to their kingdom. They don't take it from their sons, which means the sons are not obligated, they are not bound, they are not required to pay the tax. So back way up here for a second. Does Jesus have to pay for the maintenance of the temple? No, he doesn't. The temple is for Jesus. The temple points to Jesus, which means that our Lord is completely well within his rights to say, this is not my problem. That is not what he says. Look at the next sentence. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. The tax was two drachma. That's a two-day two wage per person. A shekel was worth four drachmas. So Jesus' statement was, you go to the ocean, you go to the sea, Sea of Galilee, there by Capernaum, you throw in a hook, first fish you take, pop open its mouth, there's going to be enough money in that mouth to pay for you and me. Go give that to them. Jesus provides the tax. He pays the tax. But notice his reasoning. He says, however, not to give offense to them. Now, this word, we've seen it before, particularly when the Lord was ministering in, in Galilee. He came to his hometown of Nazareth, and you'll recall that he read a passage of Scripture, and the interaction he had with his family, he offended them. He clearly upset them. The Greek word that is used there is skandalizo. There's a slight derivation of that word used here as well. I'm just going to hit the pause button. There's a lot of distractions going on in the room right now. Let's just take a deep breath and focus. I know you got kids running around. They're making goo-goo goo eyes at you, and you're focusing on all of those things. Let's listen to what's being said here because this is very important. The Lord is saying, don't give offense. Now, as you first encounter that, you might be tempted to think that what he's saying is don't do anything that might upset people. But as you look at the life of Christ, well, he did quite a number of things that upset quite a number of people, which means that at its face value, what he's saying here is not don't upset people. The root of this word, as it's recorded uh, by a professor, German guy, Gerhard Kittel, wonderful resource, theological dictionary in the New Testament, the original stem of this word has the sense of springing forward or back or slamming or closing on something. It has the idea of being a trap, like a bear trap. It's like something that you can get caught in. In fact, this year, word has been used before. In Matthew 5.29, don't flip there, just listen. You'll recall in Jesus' famous sermon, 
He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you if you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Meaning, if your eye does something that leads you into sin, get rid of your eye. Now, the word that is used there is the same word that is used here. Here, it's translated offense. There, it's translated if your eye causes you to sin. The literal meaning of the word is if your eye were to trap you or to offend you or to do something to hurt you. And we understand the context as he's talking about adultery and and sexual purity. He's talking about lusting after other women. We understand that this word has a broad syntactical range of meaning. It can mean offense as in to upset someone, but the idea in the biblical definition of this word, the idea of offense is always with regards to a person's walk with the Lord. Meaning, when you offend someone, if you offend them just because they don't like what you're saying or they don't like what you're doing, that's not sin. What is sinful is if you do something that leads someone else into sin or in some way hurts someone in their walk with the Lord. When Jesus has this interaction with his hometown, it says that he offended them. But the problem wasn't with what Jesus was saying. The problem was in their own heart. He was trying to lead them to faith. He was trying to lead them deeper in their walk with the Lord, but they were offended. Here in this particular case, Jesus is saying, and the root meaning of that word is, don't lead someone into sin. Now, they may inevitably fall into sin as a result of their own heart, but you are not to do anything to tempt someone or to lead someone into sin, which begs the question, these guys want Jesus to pay a tax that is intended to maintain the temple. He knows that in a matter of about a month, he is going to be crucified. The veil will be torn. And the dwelling place of God will now be with men, no longer held in the Holy of Holies. He knows the temple is on its last legs. It's almost over. These guys want him to pay for the upkeep of the temple. They don't know. They don't understand, and they don't get it that the temple is about to be totally done away with. Jesus has presented himself as the Messiah, which means if he just haphazardly blows off the temple, blows off the maintenance of the temple, which its maintenance has been recorded in Scripture, these guys will see Jesus as a hypocrite. Is there an explanation? Absolutely. Is Jesus bound or required to pay the temple tax? No, he's not. The temple is for him. But these guys might be led into sin. They might be led into a position where it is more difficult for them to come to faith in the Lord if the Lord exercises his divine right not to pay the temple tax. So, this is the principle. You and I, we are often put in weird situations where there's no clear commandment thou shalt not go 
to your former colleague's house and collect the t-shirt and the keys that thy employer demandeth of her. You won't find that verse anywhere in the Bible. We are tempted to say, that's not my job. It's not my job description. It's not my problem. But our Lord's example here is we are obligated to always consider what will present the best possible testimony to the world around us. We are always obligated to consider how people are seeing things and not to be worried if they get offended over sinful stuff that's going on in their own heart, but to always be concerned with whether or not our actions are making it easier for people to come to faith or whether or not our actions are making it harder for people to come to faith. A number of years ago, a friend of mine was serving as a missionary in China. He was on a short-term trip with a bunch of uh, university students, and they were ministering in a, a severely impoverished region. They didn't have running water, they didn't have electricity, and life was very difficult. And he was on a training mission with the IMB, International Mission Board, and he was over there with a bunch of these university students. And, and essentially, what began to happen after a very short period of time was that these university students started talking about, oh, well, back home we can have hot running shower, and we can watch TV, and there will be lights turned on at night, it's not dark all the time. And they began to complain. There's nothing wrong with liking running water and electricity. Those are great blessings. But the people in this region didn't know the Lord. And as these short-term missionaries began to complain about the lack of their American conveniences, what ended up happening was those Chinese people who don't know the Lord, began to hear it as these people are conceited, they're stuck up, they think they're better than us, that they have better technology than we do, they have running water and all these fancy things, and as a result of what they perceived to be arrogance, they stopped having open hearts to hear the gospel. Is there anywhere in the Bible where it says when you go to a foreign mission field, don't talk about how great it is at home? No, you won't ever find that. Is there anywhere in the Bible where it says you don't have to worry about what's going on with your coworker or your manager or your boss? No, it doesn't say that. But what it does say is that the thing that is the most important thing, the thing which should matter universally across the board for everyone, is that everyone would have the opportunity to come and know the Lord as Savior, which means everything we say, every decision we make, we don't need to necessarily worry about whether it will offend their values. What we do need to think about is how will this impact them such that they may not be able to clearly hear the gospel. It's been widely attributed to Athanasius, it's not his quote. He didn't say it. You've probably heard it before. 
preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. Now, I disagree with that statement. Preach the gospel. There is a message, and it needs to be proclaimed. Use words. Start with words. Preach the gospel. Start with words. Absolutely. But when he makes a statement, if necessary, use words, what he's hinting at, what he's trying to drive home is the fact that it's not just what we say, but it's how we live. That also matters to a watching world. The principle that Jesus gives us here in this passage is that we are free. We're not obligated. We're not bound. We're not under the law. But there's a different priority here. Love should compel us to voluntarily give up certain things. My father, many of you are aware, particularly those of you in the Logan Lake Life Group, he recently had spinal surgery. Uh, he was uh, having compression in, his, in the vertebrae in his neck, and he basically lost the use of his, of his arms. My father is a workaholic. He's the son of a farmer. I'm the grandson of a farmer. It's in the family business, right? It's, it's sort of in our DNA. We work from sun up to well after it's dark outside. My father, he's, uh, he, he loves to build. He's building this house uh, for my mom. It's kind of like their retirement thing to build this beautiful house out in the woods. And he's been a worker his whole life. He'll go to work and work all day at his nine to five, and then he'll come home and work all night on his project, his whatever he's got going. Well, he started to lose the use of his hands because of the spinal injury. So he goes and he gets surgery. They have to fuse the three vertebrae in his neck. They have to do a bone graft. They have to cut open his neck, move aside his trachea, pull out his carotid artery to get back at it. Major surgery. He's in the hospital for like three weeks. They discharge him. He goes home with the restored use of his hands. Do you want to know what the first thing was that he did? Picked up a hammer. I said, rest, bed rest, 90 days, mandatory. Do you know what bed rest sounds like to my father? It sounds like I got to finish installing the ceiling in the master bedroom. <laughs> I'm laying on my bed and I'm staring at my project. I must finish my project. That's what it sounds like to my father. Now, I laugh. I love my father. I am my son's father. I, I am my father's son. <laughs> I am not from Arkansas, okay? I, just to... <laughs> I am my father's son. Let me get that straight. You know this to be the truth because a week ago now, Friday... I woke up Friday morning feeling nauseous, feeling sick, obviously coming down with norovirus. And I had a number of things I had to get done that day. And I just said, you know what? I am not sick. I'm not going to be sick. I refuse to acknowledge the churnings of my stomach. You're not important. Forget you. And I went on my day, and you've all heard the story. I face-planted into a parking lot. Hairline fractured my jaw, concussion. Ended up, I woke up. When I passed out, there wasn't another soul in sight. I don't know how long I was passed out. I woke up, there's a homeless guy standing over me. It's one of those moments where you think, yeah, I messed up somewhere. This whole thing, I did wrong. I 
Joshua David and the son of Virgil Claycamp. One thing that you can never accuse a clay camp of is laziness. Stupidity is another matter, but laziness, absolutely not. Okay? It's the work ethic. I love my father. I honor my father. He's an amazing man. I see him do things, and I think that's incredible that you're able to do that. That's incredible in a scary, frightening way that you're pushing yourself to do that. And yet I find myself doing the same things. My mom and my wife will tell you I am a chip off of the old block. I am no one to criticize him because for whatever faults or failures he may have, I am the same way. Now, this world is broken. It's fallen under sin. The Lord's purpose is to do everything in his power to restrain the impact of sin, to mitigate against its disastrous results, and to die on behalf of fallen humanity. Was he obligated to do that? No. Was he bound to do that? No. Was he free from all of the problems of this world? Absolutely. But the kind of God that we worship is the kind that says, I love, and because I love, love requires that I take an active role all upon myself to save these people. Now, I am Joshua David, the son of Virgil, the son of Richard. Farmers, to the 10th generation before, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, then you are the brother of Jesus Christ, the son of Elohim, the son of God all-powerful, the son of God most high. And if that is you, then you are royalty. You are nobility. Are you bound and obligated? By no means. You are free. But if you're your father's child, you take it upon yourself to be like your father, to be invested in your father's interests. You inherit the family business. Which means that everything is our problem. Which means that everything matters. Which means that it doesn't matter how remote or removed or far away some issue might seem to us. It doesn't matter whether or not a particular situation is prescribed in our job description. It does not matter whether we think it's not our problem or not. The example of our Father in heaven is that He is interested in everything. Everything matters to Him. And even in a particular situation, which by rights He could claim He's not required to care about this temple tax, He says, for the sake of the weaker brother's conscience, that this person might come to know me and have a real relationship with me. My witness, not just in the things I say, but in the things I do, matters. And from their perspective, it matters. And I'm obligated to take actions according to where they're at in their spiritual walk. My friend Cody, we were in Sunday school together. He goes to this lady's house, 
you can guess, she wasn't exactly thrilled about giving up her keys and her uniform, not having a paycheck. They promised her this. He said, listen, I'm a Christian and I follow Jesus. I know that this isn't right. I'm sorry for the way you're being treated. I will do everything I can to make it right. You have my word. Takes her keys, takes her uniform, goes back to his boss, turns the stuff in, says we owe her a paycheck. Yeah, 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 we'll pay her. We owe her money for the keys and the uniform because she paid for them. You've probably gathered this is not the most pleasant employer to work for, which means that this guy had to take quite a bit of courage to say this to his boss. His boss, in time, agreed, and he took the check, plus money owed for keys, plus money owed for uniforms, back to this lady's house. Here you go. I'm very sorry for all of that trouble. She came to church that next Sunday as a result of the way he treated her. And she eventually came to faith in the Lord and got saved. You can say, it's not my problem, I'm not bound. You can say that, you are free. But if you're a son of the Father, everything matters and you are bound by love. Let's bow for a word of prayer.